Hello, all. Hello. Okay, for a minute I was a little concerned there. Check, one, two, all right. Shall we open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2? We're making progress. Revelation chapter 2. If Jesus comes before we finish the book, that's fine with me. If you need a Bible tonight, raise your hands as the ushers or pastors come up and down the aisles to uh, hand out Bibles. So I had the privilege this morning of going to Dominion Academy. Some of your kids go to Dominion Academy, affiliated with Leesburg Baptist Community Church. slash. Um, and uh, I, I did the morning devotional for kindergarten through fifth graders at their little chapel service. Uh, sometimes people ask me, is it hard to teach through the book of Revelation? It's nothing. <laughs> nothing compared to doing a devotional for kindergartners through fifth graders. <laughs> they were fine. They were respectful, wonderful kids. It's just me. I'm just like... What in the world did and I finished saying everything I had to say in 10 minutes and uh, those poor kids suffered through, I don't know what I said and <laughs> hey kitties. And so uh, I'm so used to, you know, talking at an adult level. It, that was a stretch for me. God bless you Sunday school teachers. Let's give a round of applause to all of our Sunday school teachers. <laughs> it, it was, it was good for me. I do things like this just so I can keep perspective and appreciate Sunday school teachers and uh, Christian school teachers and teachers of all kinds. That was tough. So anyhow, good bunch of kids, though. Uh, we left off last week at the end of verse 17. Um, this is where we are in, in church history. The timeline from the time that Jesus ascended uh, until the, uh, the end of the age, uh, the period we're focusing on here in between chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation is what is referred to as the church age. We are presently in the church age. It is the time that began when uh, Pentecost, Holy Spirit came upon the believers and the church was birthed. It was the birth of the church. Until the time that Jesus raptures the church, takes the church from the earth. That's referred to as the church age. So we're living in that time period. And after the church age then comes the rapture, the taking up, the seizing of believers from the earth uh, into heaven where we are kept safe for that period of seven years of tribulation that comes upon the earth. Now, these letters to these seven churches that we're reading about here in chapters 2 and 3... Uh, are um, uh, churches that existed in the first century, and so they're a part of this uh, church age. And uh, again, these seven churches are located in what is modern-day Turkey. The ancient term is Asia Minor. Uh, all seven of these churches, these cities, are located here, just to give you perspective of the map. And as you read these seven letters to the seven churches, we're going in a clockwise direction. We're starting with uh, Ephesus, and uh, we are ending with uh, the church in, in Laodicea. So we're moving clockwise in our study. And uh, again, for those of you who haven't been with us, or just to get our bearings straight again, when we read these letters, 
And as long as we're still studying these letters, I'm going to give you the, these uh, similarities uh, every time uh, so that we can be familiar with it. They all begin with a special title for Jesus, the author of each. He's dictating these letters. Uh, all are addressed to, quote, the angel or the pastor of each church. We've talked about that a little bit. Some of you have asked me some further questions about that. How do we know that these aren't literal angels and that they're uh, pastors? You know, first of all, consider if God wants to communicate something to angels, it's unlikely he's going to dictate it to a human being to get to an angel. He's dictating this to John to get to an angel. doesn't make sense. But in addition, this word in the Greek, agalos, is used several times in the New Testament, meaning simply messenger. In Matthew 11.10, Jesus referred to John the Baptist as agalos, messenger. Luke 7.24, Jesus referred to John the Baptist's followers as messengers, plural, same word, agalos. Luke 9.52, Jesus sent messengers on ahead of him into a Samaritan village, same word, agalos. James 2.25, James refers to the spies that Rahab hid as messengers, and every time that word agalos is used. It's not only used for angelic beings. This is a term that can be used for human instruments, messengers that God sends or appoints, and in these seven cases, these angels or messengers are overseers of the church. Nowhere else in Scripture do we see that angels oversaw churches. So again, we're speaking here more than likely of letters that were dictated by Jesus to the Apostle John intended for the leaders, the pastors of these local churches. And they all begin with Jesus knowing their works or their deeds and then uh, all these letters contain either a commendation, a complaint, or both. Uh, all close with some kind of an illusion pointing to Jesus' second coming. All close with a special promise or reward to the overcomers, to believers. And all close with the same challenge. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're going to uh, take a look where we left off. Now, so far we've seen these three letters. We've looked at the letter to the church of Ephesus, which... Um, is um, also representative of the apostolic church. Uh, we've looked at the church of Smyrna, which is also representative of the suffering church, and then the letter to the church of Pergamum, which is also um, historically now known as the state church. Now, why are these churches labeled like this? Apostolic church, suffering church, the state church. Because, and this is important to understand, and you don't have to agree with this, but obviously I'm going to teach from my personal persuasion after studying and, um, and uh, consulting, you know, other greater minds certainly than mine, is that these letters to the seven churches, while these churches are literal churches that existed during the first century, and that these letters are intended specifically to address problems of those first century churches or good things of these first century churches. They also serve to bring light to spiritual issues that could potentially be problematic or a good thing about the church today. So we can see these things in spiritual terms. But when you look at, at the timeline of events here, and this is, this is important for us to understand, when we get to chapter 4 eventually... Uh, we're going to see that chapter 4 is strong evidence for the rapture, the taking of the church prior to the tribulation period, which means then that events in chapters 2 and 3, and not everything in Revelation is chronological, but if uh, events in chapters 2 and 3 with the letters to the seven churches lead up to chapter 4, which is the rapture of the church, then we can also glean some things as Jesus dictates these letters 
we can look back and realize that there are some words and terms that actually identify the spiritual condition of the church through the centuries. And so that what it appears to also be for us is a timeline that indicates the spiritual condition of the church ever since the rapture, uh, sorry, since the uh, ascension of Jesus, 33 AD, when the church was birthed, the church of Ephesus then begins this church age and we can see some things that he writes about in, in the, his letter to the church of Ephesus that looking back was symptomatic of that first century apostolic church. And we can also read in different things that he writes about the church of Smyrna. And then the word Smyrna comes from that word myrrh, meaning uh, one of the, the fragrance that was used to embalm the dead and the suffering. That suffering church, we can look back and see all that he spoke about in relation to suffering to the church of Smyrna well, we know that in, in that next time period from roughly 100 A.D. to 312 A.D. that it was an intense time of suffering and persecution. Six million or more Christians lost their lives as martyrs. And then when we look at the church of Pergamon, we talked last week about how Pergamos, uh, gamos, is the root word for, uh, for marriage. It's a word that means marriage. We get polygamy, uh, mon monogamy. It's a, it's a term that refers to marriage that the church was then slipping into this marriage between the state, an organized uh, state religion, and Christianity started to merge in, in this kind of a state uh, church. Now, I just want to expound on that a little bit because it sets the tone for where we're heading into the church of Thyatira. Uh, when we talk here about the church of Pergamum, or some, your King James Bibles will say Pergamos, again, um, in, in uh, 312 uh, A.D., uh, Constantine has this epiphany of sorts. He's the emperor at the time of Rome. He uh, will say in his uh, journals that he saw this burning cross and heard a voice in this sign, go forth and conquer. So he has this conversion experience. Again, I mentioned last week some people question whether it was a sincere conversion or what. We don't know. But uh, let's assume it was. Uh, give the benefit of the doubt. And he has this conversion experience. And what happens is he then makes Christianity uh, the recognized religion, which is completely a reversal of the way history had been up to this point. Christians had been persecuted, martyred, killed for their faith. Now Constantine has this epiphany, this relationship with Jesus that he talks about, and he makes Christianity, the, the state religion, it is a crime if you're not a Christian. It's a complete reversal. Everybody's becoming a Christian now. Well, you can see what kind of a church this makes. I mean, now people are just becoming Christians because they don't want to die. You know? I mean, it used to be that, that if you became a Christian, you'd die. Now people are becoming a Christian because they don't want to die. And you have a lot still of this pagan influence because we're still talking the Roman Empire, polytheism, false gods and goddesses. What do we do with them? Well, why don't we just kind of merge and, and kind of you know, envelop Christianity with some of this, this pagan, idolatrous stuff. Now, something significant happens, significant happens in 325 A.D. 325 A.D., the Roman Empire moves its capital from Rome to Constantinople, otherwise known today as Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, Constantine is still emperor. And... Um, and and as this newfound state religion starts to penetrate the Roman Empire, 
there is this uh, jockeying for power. Uh, those who are in Constantinople say, well, now that the Roman Empire is located here in terms of its capital city, then the state religion, the seat of religion, has to be here. And uh, it, it was known as the Catholic Church. Now, the ca Catholic, just in that term, small c, or, uh, means universal, right? Now, those of you who grew up in mainline traditional denominations, you may have recited the Apostles' Creed. I can remember sitting in my Methodist church, and uh, we would recite the Apostles' Creed, and we'd get to that part about, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And I, I can remember as a kid, people around me, we're not going to read that part. And they wouldn't say it. And they wouldn't say it because they thought that they were verbally endorsing the Roman Catholic Church. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. That's not what that means. Catholic small c just means the universal church. The church was always known as the Catholic Church small c. And, and so what happened is that in 325 A.D., Constantinople starts to assert itself, we want to be the seat of the Catholic Church, the universal small c Christian church. People in Rome said, no, 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 the headquarters might have been moved to Constantinople, but traditionally this is where it all started. We want to have the seat of the uh, Catholic Church, small c, and you had this, this internal war. So the Christians uh, of the Catholic Church, small c, of Constantinople became otherwise known as the Eastern Orthodox Catholics. Those in Rome became known as Roman Catholics. Catholics, and now it became capital C. We are the Roman Catholic Church, capital C. We are the Eastern Orthodox Church, capital C. And so there was this split. Now what happens is that in 606 A.D., the emperor of Rome, or the emperor at the time, decides that he's going to bestow the title of universal bishop of the church upon Boniface III in Rome. And it's the beginning of the papal authority. He's known as the universal bishop or papa, father. And there begins the papacy, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church, 606 A.D., first Catholic pope. Now, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I'm saying all this because what happens is during the time of Pergamos, that church period, and, and, and uh, Christianity becomes the state religion, a few things begin to emerge when you see this marrying, Pergamos, Gamos, marriage, of the church and the worldly culture of paganism. For example, during the time period of, of the church of Pergamum, uh, you have uh, purgatory starts to become a doctrine and praying for the dead in relation to purgatory. The worship of saints and angels. Now, you see how subtle this stuff happens. Because you have this state religion where we all are going to believe in Jesus as the Lord and Savior, but we're so used to worshiping gods and goddesses of the Roman Empire that let's start worshiping saints and angels. See how all of it begins to just transfer. And uh, in addition, during the Church of Pergamum, the state church period of time, you, have, you start to have the worship of Mary, and you start to have priests wearing robes and collars to separate themselves from the laity. And this is what is starting to happen now at this particular era of, of church history. Now, that is going to become even more explosive as it moves further into the church of Thyatira. So that's where we are in verse 18. 
We're at the Church of Thyatira, which is, in terms of church history now, looking at the timeline, uh, now going to be recognized as the Roman Catholic Church. Because of its idolatry, it's going to be reflected here in this letter as an idolatrous church. Now, even though there is this beginning timeline of 606 AD, and it's relative to the first appointed pope, um, there's an ending time here, which is 1517, because of another, another important event in, uh, event in church history. But that isn't to say that that's obviously the end of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church is still ongoing. So these last four letters we're going to look at, the letter to the Church of Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, there is some element in each of these last four churches that is still ongoing to today. And, um, and that's the case here with the church of Thyatira. Now, let me uh, read the letter, which is uh, verse 18 down through the end of the chapter, verse 29. And then we'll, we'll pull back and, and talk about the city and talk about the, the letter in its context. All right? So, verse 18. To the angel, to the agalos, to, again, the pastor of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols." I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets... I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, in terms of just a, a quick uh, overview... Oh, great. Where am I going? There. In terms of just a, a quick overview here with Thyatira, here's his title. Uh, he uh, refers to himself as the Son of God, but he defines that even uh, more um, completely. We'll look at it again. He commends them for their love, faith, service, and perseverance. So there's some good things happening in this church. And his complaint is that they're tolerant of sin, whatever this Jezebel issue is, um, we'll define it more completely, but it's uh, basically authority equal to Scripture, uh, seduced God's people with idolatry, a system of works, and then finally the reward he promises is authority to rule, and he gives them, promises them the morning star. Now, just as uh, far as background goes on Thyatira, this is uh, a city that is only mentioned one other place outside of the book of Revelation, and that's Acts 16, the first convert in Philippi that Paul led to the Lord was a lady by the name of Lydia. She was a convert to Judaism. She was a dealer of purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. Now, 
Thyatira was known for producing this. Um, purple is probably not a, a great definition of the color. It's more of a crimson red. It's a deep red. In fact, today in Turkey, it's called uh, Turkish red. And so it's a deep, dark red that almost looks like a purple. And it was extracted from a certain, a certain uh, shellfish that is indigenous to the area there, and they would squeeze this shellfish and this dye would squirt out. Now, I don't know who was the first guy who decided, I'm going to try to squeeze that thing and see what will come out of it, but it, it turned into quite a lucrative business because it was the place where purple dye was um, uh, bought and traded here at this place because of this particular shellfish here. And as a result, this city was a pretty prosperous uh, city, known for its purple dye. It's located about 30 miles uh, between Pergamos and Sardis, the previous church, and then the next church we're going to look at. Today, uh, the town is called uh, Akasar in Turkey with a population of about 50,000 people. Uh, this is the longest letter of the seven that Jesus dictates here to this church, although it happens to be dictated to the smallest of the seven cities. It is his most severe letter. He will write to them in the most severe judging terms. And uh, he speaks here as uh, the one who is referred to as the Son of God. Look again at verse 18. Whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, you don't have to know too much about the Bible to know that's probably not good. When Jesus shows up with eyes that are on fire, <laughs> I mean, that's just not a good sign. Now, it's an indication that he is coming here as a righteous judge. Blazing fire, feet of bronze. Bronze is always a metal associated with judgment. So he's coming here as the righteous judge because he's going to deal swiftly with something that is seriously wrong with this church. Now he says in verse 19, I know your deeds, and he commends them. Love and faith, um, your service and perseverance. So those four things in particular, love, faith, service and perseverance. They're doing some things well here. You know, it's, God is always going to find, uh, maybe I shouldn't say always, but for the most part, you know, God looks upon a local church and, you know, ev there's no perfect church. Every church has its flaws. Every church has its problems. But, you know, there's, you could look at any church and there's still something good going on. God's got something good going on. Now, there, there might be some, some bad stuff going on, too, which is the case in most of these churches where there, there's something good and bad going on. But here in the church of Thyatira, he commends them for their love, faith, service, and perseverance. And nevertheless, verse 20, I have this against you. He says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants... So Jesus takes this very personally, my servants, into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. There are a couple of schools of thought. Is, is Jesus referring to a real woman here? Is Jezebel a, a real person in this church that he's rebuking here? Or is it likely, and, and I tend to believe this one, that he is drawing on an Old Testament story, just as he did in, um, 
What was the previous letter where he talks about uh, Balaam? Well, it was the previous church, church in Pergamos. He talks about you hold to the teaching of Balaam. He's drawing on an Old Testament example there. And it's more than likely that while she doesn't represent a literal person in the church of Thyatira at this point, that, that he is using an Old Testament story about a real woman in the Old Testament, First Kings is where the story goes, um, who was well known for her idolatry. Now, Jezebel, you can read later, 1 Kings chapters 16 through 21 in the Old Testament. And it, and it talks about Jezebel and who she was. Here's who she was. She was the daughter of a Sidonian king. Uh, in fact, let me just read just a couple of verses from 1 Kings 16, uh, 30, um, starting at 29. Uh, down through verse 33. Just listen. It says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal, Baal, and worship him. Now, this is the king of Israel. Now, note this with me. He's evil already, but then the Bible says on top of his already evilness, he marries this woman, Jezebel, who is the daughter of a Sidonian king, and not just any king. This guy, this father of Jezebel, is an occult priest. His name is Ethbaal. It translates in the Hebrew, Ethbaal, meaning with or beside Baal. He is a worshiper of Baal. He is a priest of Baal. And, and so Ahab, King Ahab, marries Jezebel. And, um, and as a result of this marriage, she obviously brings the influence of occultism and idolatry as this daughter of a Sidonian king and uh, occult priest into Israel. And so it goes on in 1 Kings 16 saying that he, that is Ahab, set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. So this is that Jezebel. Now, he marries her. She brings all this occultism, idolatry, false god worship to Israel. Uh, Ahab, so smitten by her, even builds a, a, a temple to this false god Baal and brings then idolatry in, into Israel. And God says he did more evil than all the previous kings. And so it's likely that Jesus is referring to Jezebel of the Old Testament because idolatry has crept into the church. Now, he speaks here of Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And he's obviously speaking there in, in terms of a rebuke. She's not really one. She calls herself one. And there are in the New Testament, there are prophets and there are prophetesses uh, as, as well as Old Testament. Um, the daughters of Philip were, were a prophetesses. They prophesied in the New Testament. It's, it's not like there's something wrong with that, except when you're not really one. <laughs> then there's a big problem. And, and so Jesus says that she calls herself a prophetess. And, and near the end of this letter, verse 24, 
Again, he says, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. Here's what Jezebel's doing. She's presenting herself as a prophetess, not really one, claiming to speak on par with scripture. And Jesus comes along and he says, this is so-called profound teaching. He says, let me tell you something. It's really from Satan. She's not really a prophetess, but she has set herself up in authority on par with scripture. There's a problem with that. There's never any one person whose voice or authority is ever on the same level with Scripture. Scripture is always supreme. It is always to be revered, the Word of God, as uh, that which is supreme in authority. And the problem when you begin to recognize in church history some of the things of the timeline and the Roman Catholic Church, why, as many of you know, because many of you have come out of the Roman Catholic background, the papal authority... The word of the Pope is esteemed and accepted and embraced as equal with Scripture itself. And that's what is happening here in this church. Jezebel is asserting herself as a prophetess. She is putting her authority on the same level as the word of God. And Jesus has a strong rebuke against her. Now, in addition to that issue, she is introducing this sexual immorality into the church. Now, does it mean literal sexual immorality? Well, it's hard to know. Maybe. Maybe, that there, maybe there's some sexual sin going on in the church. It certainly is a good point for every church to recognize this is not to be a place where Christians think that they can hide and still be living in sexual sin. You're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you're not married, it's sin. It's sexual sin. God has ordained sex as a beautiful thing between a husband and a wife, but only a husband and a wife. And any other sexual activity by any other definition outside of marriage is sin. So it could be that this is a rebuke because there is ongoing sexual sin in this particular church and Jesus is using the opportunity to rebuke it, a warning that we should take note of as well in the church today. Or it could mean... In terms of this whole spiritual symbolism, Jezebel drawing from an Old Testament story, that sexual immorality is in the sense of they have become adulterous because of their idolatry. Because the next part is that sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. There is idolatry going on here. And you can look at a parallel in the Old Testament. For example, there are a few times, but one is in Jeremiah 3 and verse 8 where God refers to Israel as adulterous and being in sexual sin as, as immorality and unfaithfulness because she was given to idolatry and she turned away from the true and living God. Jeremiah 3, verse 8, God says, I gave Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. And he speaks of the nation of Israel as living in sexual sin, adultery, because she had turned away from God and the nation of Israel was worshiping false gods and they were given to idolatry. So that is probably the context of this letter. That Jezebel represents this false religious system that has asserted itself on equal footing with the word of God and has seduced God's people with idolatry itself. And for that, Jesus says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent of her immorality, but she was unwilling. And he says, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, King James says tribulation, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. 
Now, this is a little challenging here because it seems to indicate, again, as I mentioned, all four of these latter churches, there's some aspect that you see even today. Could it be that Jesus is saying here that if people don't turn away from their idolatry and turn to the living God, they will go through the tribulation period? Very likely. That's what he's saying. He's saying that anybody who claims to be a Christian but is not worshiping Jesus, that instead is worshiping other idols, in reality has forsaken the living God, cannot claim to know Jesus if they are also worshiping false gods, idols, icons, saints, whatever it might be. Therefore, as Jesus is saying here, won't go, into the, won't go into the rapture. They will go into the tribulation, suffer intently, unless they repent of her ways. There's always hope. There's always repentance. All of us were dead in our sins and trespasses. But he made us alive and he quickened us, and there's grace and forgiveness of sins. The only time you are without hope is when you're dead. I mean, that's it. But until you breathe your last, all of us have the hope to turn to Jesus and, and to be saved and to know that our eternal hope is in him. But it cannot be mixed with any other kind of idolatry. Now, during this particular time period now, as, as we consider the kinds of idolatry that have crept into the church, and in particular as we speak of Roman Catholicism, and look, you know, it's not my intent to just you know, hammer Roman Catholics. There is problems in every denomination, every church. There's problems in, with even, even within the Calvary Chapel movement. There, there's some issues at hand. In every church, there has to be uh, matters that are dealt with uh, um, honestly and sincerely. But just speaking in terms of factual things, when, when you consider the things um, during this time period, as we talk about the church of Thyatira, we're talking 606 A.D. to 1517 A.D. We'll talk about what that date means um, if we have time, a little bit. But in these years, listen what has emerged in the church, and we're talking specifically in the Roman Catholic Church. In the year 709 A.D., the doctrine of kissing the Pope's foot was introduced. In 850 A.D., the use of holy water came to be. In 1090 A.D., the mechanical praying with beads, the rosary, which was a practice invented by Peter the Hermit, came to be. In 1215 A.D., transubstantiation was introduced. I'll talk a little bit about that. We have before. In 1229 A.D., the Bible was forbidden to laymen, and only priests were able to read the Bible, and then they had to translate it. You had to go through a priest in order to understand Scripture. And the whole Latin mass up until the 60s, people couldn't even understand it even when it was read and recited. Now, what's interesting is that the Mass, the Roman Catholic Church and the Mass, the receiving of the elements, connected with transubstantiation, the doctrine that was introduced in the year roughly 1215. And I've mentioned this a couple of months ago when we were studying through Scripture. I don't even remember where we were, to be honest. But, the, oh, yeah, I remember. It was for 1 Corinthians 11, and we talked about, you know, why Protestants celebrate communion in a different way from Roman Catholics. The Mass, when the elements are distributed, the wafer and, um, and, and the wine symbolic of the body and the blood of Jesus. Again, Roman Catholics believe that there is a molecular thing that miraculously happens when they ingest the wafer and when they receive and ingest the wine, and that is that they believe that it actually becomes the body and the blood that they actually ingest. There's a spiritual miraculous thing, they would say, where the flesh of Jesus 
and the blood of Jesus they actually ingest. Now, the Mass teaches the perpetual, when you receive Mass, you are affirming the crucifixion of Christ afresh. That the Mass presents those elements as a continual sacrifice because you are continually ingesting the flesh and the blood of Jesus. Now, as Protestants, we believe that it is symbolic of the sacrifice and we are celebrating and remembering the price that Jesus paid. It has a different meaning for Roman Catholics because associated with the Mass is this idea of the continual crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus is continually being crucified every time you are receiving the elements because you are ingesting the flesh and the blood of Jesus in this miraculous molecular thing. What's interesting to note is continual sacrifice is what the Mass represents. Right down in the margins of your Bible, the word Thyatira in translation means continual sacrifice. There is a parallel here, gang. There is a religion that has emerged within mainstream Christianity that was ever so subtle when Constantine did a great thing at first by making Christianity world religion. But it, it became a very mechanical, um, idolatrous thing when you are merging two streams that are diametrically opposed. When you are merging Christianity, salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone, no works, the work of Jesus is what finished it all. We put our faith and trust in His finished work. We can't work our way to heaven. It's Jesus' work, His grace. We receive it as a gift. You merge that with the worship of false gods and goddesses, and you are on a collision course for now a church that is steeped in icons and idolatry and a papal authority and the kissing of the Pope's foot. And you can go to the Basilica in Rome today. In fact, a couple of years ago, we had a, when we took our trip to Israel and led a tour group there, we had a layover in Rome. Don't ever fly Alitalia. <laughs> Praise God. The Italian airline, it translates, uh, you have a 12-hour layover. And... Uh, Anyway, some, some, uh, some folks from our, from our group decided, let's just go on a tour of, of Rome since we got a 12-hour layover. And, um, and you can go to, to St. Peter's Basilica today, and you can see the statue of St. Saint Peter, and his left toe is missing. His left big toe is missing. There's people over the years, you know, out of marble, this, this thing is people have been kissing his toe and rubbing it and kissing his toe, and, and it's gone now. And I, I'm thinking, you know, what would Peter be thinking of that? That people are, I mean, Peter, his history tells us that he determined, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but historically, tradition tells us that, uh, that Peter wanted to be hanged upside down, crucified upside down, I should say, because he didn't even feel that he should die the same way Jesus did, so crucify me upside down. And now we're making him the first pope and we're worshiping him and honoring him and bowing down to him and kissing his foot. and it, You see how things can creep in and begin to dilute and convolute uh, the pure church of God. Now, um, let's read on. So again, 
Jesus. Verse 23, I will strike your children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, and now he's talking to the remnant, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Now that can be translated also tribulation. I will not impose any other tribulation on you. It sounds like it's a promise to the remnant. You turn away from idolatry. You worship the true and living Lord. While those who are given to idolatry may go through the tribulation period, those who turn away from that, Jesus says, I will not impose any other burden, any other tribulation on you. Probably a promise to be rescued as part of the rapture. So there is a... And, you know, look... Even, even within the Roman Catholic Church, and I know many of you know this and some of you came out of it, there, I mean, there was a great renewal and, and the charismatic movement swept the Roman Catholic Church in the 70s. And, there's, and uh, you know, some people are going to be hard-lined and say, I don't believe any Roman Catholic can really be a Christian. Uh, you know, I, if people believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior... God will deal with some of the other traditional stuff that might need to be peeled off. I know he had to do that in my own heart, even as raised as, as a United Methodist guy, all right? Lord had to peel some stuff that was really rooted in tradition, not necessarily in Scripture, and it wasn't until I started reading the Bible to find out what's the difference between what God says and what man says. And, you know, when we peel off some of that stuff over time, yes, anybody who professes Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is born again and saved, and there can be a remnant spared out of every church and every mainline denomination. And, and praise be to God for that. Amen? And so he will rescue this remnant. And he says in verse 25, Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. We talked about this. Now he's going to move into this period of the millennial kingdom where Christians will rule and reign with Jesus. That's what he's promising here, authority over the nations that he will rule them, this is the Lord, with an iron scepter, he will dash them to pieces like pottery. And just as I have received authority from my Father, Jesus says, I will also give him the morning star. And I'll circle that term, and just in the margin you can write Revelation twenty-two sixteen, where Jesus refers to himself as the morning star. And I think simply what he's saying is, you will get the ultimate reward, you will get me. You will receive me as the ultimate prize. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, I had all this other stuff ready for the church of Sardis, but uh, some of you want to get home and see American Idol. So I, uh, <laughs> speaking of idolatry, <laughs> it is 8.15 though. It is a school night. So uh, I'd go on and on, but... Uh, we do have to be respectful of, of the time. So let's pick it up here next week. We'll get into the church of Sardis and uh, read ahead. 1517 is another important year in the life of the church, and we'll, we'll see how that all relates uh, to the timeline as well. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the continual challenge before us. And thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy. You saw good things in this church. I hope, Lord, you see good things in our church. I hope, Lord, you do see the love and the faithfulness and the service and the perseverance in our church. And I pray, Lord, that you would always and only be the one that we worship, that there would be no other things or no other people or no other possessions that we would esteem and value more than you that you are the supreme desire of our hearts.
that there be no sexual sin, no compromise. Lord, that we would be wholly devoted to you. That you would rescue us from this coming tribulation. That, Lord, our hope is in you. That, that you would take the bride, you would take the church, that you would rescue us. And, Lord, that we would one day see you, the morning star. Help us, Lord, to hold on to these precious promises because in this world we can grow weary. And it often does have its share of tribulation, small t. But you say to us, Lord, take heart, I've overcome the world. And so while we might live in this world, help us not to be of this world. Help our lives to be so different and distinct that people would look upon our lives and see our lives as a testimony of your goodness and of your grace. And thank you, Father, that no matter what our background, whether we've come out of a particular church or no church at all, that we can come afresh to the foot of the cross and find grace and forgiveness of sins. And Lord, in spite of the fact that there are problems in every church, you are doing a good thing and a new thing in a lot of Baptist churches and Pentecostal churches and Presbyterian churches and the Roman Catholic Church. And Lord, we, we trust that in the end, we'll all stand before you, those who know you, those who accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, and we'll have no shame. We'll stand faultless before you, not because there's any merit in us, but because of what Jesus has done. And I'm just going to pause in my prayer because I, I just always want to take advantage of a time like this, not knowing where any of you might necessarily be in relation to the Lord if you don't know Christ as your Savior tonight. And maybe you have been going to church all your life, but you don't know Jesus in a personal way, the living Lord. Tonight can be the night that you invite him into your heart. You can just receive him tonight by faith and believe in Jesus Christ and be born again. The Bible says, To as many as received him, to them that believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you want to know him as Lord and Savior tonight, I'm going to lead you in a prayer as, as I close this prayer. And if it's your heart's desire to pray this with me, maybe you're even watching by internet tonight, wherever you might be, in the cafe just pray this prayer with me. You want to know Christ is your Savior. Just whisper this prayer right now between you and the Lord. I'll lead you. Just pray it. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I confess that I'm a sinner like everyone else in need of a Savior. And I believe that you, Jesus, are the only Savior so, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart tonight and save me. Make me your own, a child of God, with the assurance of heaven in my heart. I put my trust in you, Lord Jesus, in whose name I pray. And all of God's people said, Amen and amen. If you prayed that prayer tonight, 
would you allow me or one of the pastors to pray with you after the service just to encourage you and to celebrate with you? You can come up after the service and just chat with one of us. We'll be up here around the front. Or maybe you want to pray that prayer and you didn't with me. You can come up and we'll pray with you again. God bless you all. Let's stand. Show yourself friendly to somebody on the way out. Have a great night. We'll see you on Sunday or Saturday.